0: on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift hi everyone welcome back to another episode of addiction in emergency medicine and acute care dr casey grover here pleased to be your host once again and this episode is going to be a little different i just did grand rounds on stigma at my hospital and I wanted to record my Grand Rounds and use it for a podcast episode, but I couldn't get the audio recording to work right. So I'm just going to kind of present from my PowerPoint slides and I'll do my best to edit my mistakes because usually I have a pre-prepared script when I'm podcasting. So let's, uh, let's get started. And I just wanted to clarify that this particular topic will be on stigma by healthcare providers against patients with stigmatizing conditions. The way I did this grand round is I started with some take home points, and we're going to do three take home points about stigma. First, stigma, as it pertains to us as healthcare providers having stigma about our patients, is a set of negative and often unfair beliefs about patients with a particular condition. Second, stigma hurts patients in multiple ways, including changing their behavior avoiding health care, receiving poorer health care, and it actually increases their risk of dying. And third, reducing stigma is actually easier than you think and it can be done best as a team effort at your institution. As always, I really want to keep this podcast evidence-based and I'm going to go through a number of papers that I actually read and reviewed when presenting my grand round. So, the first one is a paper from the journal, Harm Reduction Journal, and I really didn't do anything more with it than just read the title. And the title says it all. Maybe if I stopped the drugs, then maybe they'd care. Hospital care experiences of people who use drugs. And the lead author there was Sue chan Carasoni. I probably mispronounced the name, I apologize. But the fact that we have a paper in the medical literature with this as the title suggests that stigma is a huge deal. So we'll move on to the first paper that I reviewed, which was from BMJ Case Reports in 2014 entitled, Stigma and Mental Health Challenges in Medical Students. And in this one, basically we looked at what's the definition of stigma. and. Uh, in this paper, they give this definition quote, An attribute considered to be undesirable and unpleasant by society and which differentiates the stigmatized person from other members of the community that he or she should belong to. End quote. And I thought this was actually pretty descriptive. I did also uh, look up the word stigma in the dictionary. And this was the definition given by Merriam-Webster. Stigma most often refers to a set of negative and often unfair beliefs that a society or group of people have about something. For example, people talk about the stigma associated with mental illness or the stigma of poverty. So that's kind of our definition to get us started. I'm going to move on to the second paper, which is from the journal Addictive Behaviors and the title here is An Investigation of Stigma in Individuals Receiving Treatment for Substance Abuse, and it's from 2007. And in this paper, they look at types of stigma. The first type of stigma is enacted stigma, which is basically directly experienced social discrimination. The second type of stigma is perceived stigma, which is basically beliefs that members of a stigmatized group have about the prevalence of stigmatizing attitudes and actions. And the third type of stigma is self-stigma, or the negative thoughts and feelings that come from identification with a stigmatized group. And let's translate those a little bit. Let's imagine that I have depression. For enacted stigma, that would be you judging or discriminating against me because I have depression. I am directly experiencing that stigma. For perceived stigma, I believe that my healthcare providers judge or discriminate against me because I have depression. So that's me believing that there is stigma. There actually may not be stigma, but I feel it. And then the third self-stigma would be I feel negative thoughts such as shame about myself because I have depression. So those are, again, the three main types of stigma uh, from that second article. And looking again in this same article from Addictive Behaviors in 2007, I wanted to ask the question, does stigma harm patients? And this is a big question that I'm going to try to answer in this episode, but let's look at just the answer from this paper. And the authors in this paper note that enacted stigma against mental health patients is associated with unemployment, housing problems, and difficulty in social adjustment and furthermore enacted stigma against substance use patients is associated with delays in seeking treatment decreased self-esteem and lower quality of life so i think to ask the question does stigma harm patients the answer on a high level is yes now let's see if we can quantify the effect size of stigma on health outcomes, and we're gonna move to a third paper here, which is from Social Science and Medicine in 2014, and the title of the article is Structural Stigma and All-Cause Mortality in Sexual Minority Populations. And this brings us to one more stigma definition, which is structural stigma. And structural stigma is defined as societal level conditions, cultural norms, and institutional practices that constrain the opportunities, resources, and well-being for the stigmatized population. So kind of, how is stigma built into society? And in this case, they looked at sexual minorities. And so being in the sexual majority would be to have a sexual preference or behavior that is consistent with most people in the community. For example, being heterosexual in a predominantly heterosexual community being a sexual minority would be being homosexual, for example, in a predominantly heterosexual community. So in this particular paper, they wanted to look at what is the effect of structural stigma on the health of sexual minorities. And I'm gonna quote from the authors here, quote, these results indicate that sexual minorities living in communities with higher levels of structural stigma die sooner than sexual minorities living in a low stigma community and these effects are independent of established risk factors for mortality, end quote. And to kind of break that down, basically this paper looked at being a sexual minority in a low stigma community versus a high stigma community. And being a sexual minority in a community with high structural stigma versus a community with low structural stigma reduced the lifespan by 12 years all-cause mortality. That is just crazy, right? So think about this. The effect of structural stigma was powerful enough to shorten someone's lifespan by 12 years. And we can actually dig a little bit deeper in on this topic of trying to quantify how stigma harms patients. The next paper uh, I reviewed for this Grand Rounds presentation was from BMC Medicine in 2018, and it was entitled, How and Why Weight Stigma Drives the Obesity Epidemic and Harms Health. And this was basically a study of 13,692 adults, and they were looking at weight stigma. And what they found is that people who experienced weight stigma had a 60% percent increased risk of dying, all cause mortality independent of body mass index. And that's just, again, that's just crazy, right? How is it that stigma causes a 60 percent increased risk of dying? This is a huge issue. And the authors actually delved into this question of how does this happen, And it was felt to be that the mortality increase was from the direct and indirect effects of chronic social stress. And they actually highlight metabolic dysregulation, higher stress hormones, and higher inflammation as the reason for the increase in mortality. Moving on to the next paper that I reviewed for this presentation on stigma. I next reviewed the paper entitled Mental Health Stigma and Primary Healthcare Decisions. This was from Psychiatry Research in 2014. And I'm going to start with a quote from the authors here to kind of set the stage for this this study. Quote, "Those with stigmatizing attitudes may believe people with mental illness are less likely to adhere to treatment recommendations." If this is the case, Providers may be less likely to offer some types of health care options to people with serious mental illness," end quote. And this was a study actually from the Veterans Administration looking at how stigma about mental health affected health care decisions. Basically, what they noted is that providers who had stigmatized views about mental health patients were more likely to believe that mental health patients would not adhere to treatment. And in this particular study, they actually looked at giving patients with back pain a prescription for naproxen, which is an NSAID. It's actually over-the-counter, and referral to a specialist. And they looked in this particular study at primary care providers who were taking care of patients with schizophrenia versus without schizophrenia. And basically what they found is that schizophrenic patients with back pain were less likely to get a prescription for naproxen or be referred to a specialist if the primary healthcare provider had stigmatizing views about patients with mental health conditions. So this is profound, right? I mean, a primary care provider who has negative views about patients with mental health conditions is less likely to give a patient with schizophrenia an over-the-counter medicine. I think this really goes to show just how deep stigma can affect healthcare. We've looked now at kind of high level health outcomes, we've looked at mortality, and now we're looking at day to day healthcare decisions made between patients and their doctors. Now, you may be wondering. How Do Patients Respond to Stigma? And that brings us to our sixth article, which is from Epidemiology and Psychiatric Sciences in 2018, and the title of the article is Coping with Stigma and Discrimination, Evidence from Mental Health Service Users in England. And these authors basically outline four different ways that patients respond to stigma when they feel it. First, secrecy. They conceal their stigmatized conditions. Second, patients might respond by educating others about the stigmatized condition that they have. Third, patients may choose to challenge others about their stigmatizing attitudes. And fourth, patients may just choose to avoid healthcare altogether. And when they actually looked, they found that secrecy is the most commonly used, which was the approach used by 73% of patients in this study. And unfortunately, secrecy is associated with lower self-esteem, higher perceived stigma, and higher self-stigma. Now, if you're asking yourself, why do patients choose secrecy the most? That brings us to the seventh study that I reviewed for this presentation, which is from the journal PLOS 1 in 2014, And the title of the article is Diagnostic Overshadowing and Other Challenges Involved in the Diagnostic Process of Patients with Mental Illness Who Present in Emergency Departments with Physical Symptoms, a Qualitative Study. And this study looked at the concept of what's called diagnostic overshadowing, which is basically the misattribution of physical symptoms to mental illness. And I'm going to quote from the authors here. This study confirmed that diagnostic overshadowing can lead to misdiagnosis of people with mental illness who present in the emergency department with physical symptoms. Interviewees reported a series of specific cases with varied degree of seriousness in which mental illness interfered with a diagnosis of a physical problem. Basically, patients choose to hide their stigmatized condition because they don't want to be blown off, they want to be taken seriously, and they want their providers to do a full medical investigation. And that is completely reasonable. I know I've done this on shift and I'm grateful for a couple of cases that I can think of where I thought someone was just a little bit anxious that I did a medical workup and I found a medical condition. So just a brief reminder here to avoid diagnostic overshadowing with mental illness in our practice. I wanted to dig in a little deeper as to why patients choose secrecy, and this will bring us to our eighth paper, which is from Epidemiology and Psychiatric Science in 2017, and the article is entitled Mental Illness Stigma, Secrecy, and Suicidal Ideation. And this paper focused on what was called Modified Labeling Theory. And Modified Labeling Theory is basically summarized by the following three points. First, stigma is only relevant for those persons labeled with stigmatizing conditions. Second, labeled individuals are likely to develop fear of stigma. And third, a common strategy for those with fear of stigma is to conceal the stigmatizing condition. And I'm gonna translate those three points into what I think made more sense in my mind. First, only those with stigmatizing conditions feel stigma. Second, stigma doesn't feel good. Third, so hiding the stigmatizing condition seems like a pretty reasonable way to avoid feeling bad. And unfortunately, this leads to a vicious cycle related to stigma. Patients get diagnosed with a stigmatizing condition. They feel stigma, it's not pleasant. They then hide the condition their healthcare providers then find out that they hid their stigmatizing condition. Patients then feel stigma even more since they have a stigmatizing condition and tried to hide it and are now feeling judged by the provider and this just repeats. It's very unpleasant for patients and unfortunately, a lot of the stigma felt by patients can be a risk factor for suicide. We'll move on to our ninth paper that we reviewed for this presentation, which is from Drug and Alcohol Dependence in 2020, and it's entitled Strategies Used by People Who Inject Drugs to Avoid Stigma in Healthcare Settings. And this was pretty simple. This was basically just a study looking at patients' experiences when they feel stigma. And I'm going to quote one of the patients that they interviewed in this paper, quote, when it comes down to it, a lot of the times that I need to get medical attention, I put it off and put it off and put it off because I don't wanna face the embarrassment that they make me feel and that's not fair." End quote. And the authors move on to point out their perspective on this and they note that instead of accessing needed healthcare services, this patient and others in the article decided to delay their medical care as long as possible often until they required emergency services. And the case that always comes to mind when I think about this is the patient with injection drug use who has endocarditis. They clearly could have gotten healthcare before they had an infected heart valve and needed surgery. And it's just so sad that stigma prevents patients from getting the care that they need moving on to the 10th paper that i reviewed for this presentation this was from annals of emergency medicine in 2017 and the title of the article was health and public policy to facilitate effective prevention and treatment of substance use disorders involving illicit and prescription drugs an american college of physicians position paper and this article i reviewed because i wanted to ask the question what happens on the macro scale When we look at what happens all over the United States, what does stigma do? Um, And how does it affect access to healthcare and the rate at which we treat various diseases? And unfortunately, you will see that stigma hurts all of America. This study looked at the rates of treatment for chronic illnesses in the United States. Hypertension, we treat 77% of Americans with hypertension. Diabetes, we treat 73% of Americans with diabetes. Major depression, we treat 71% of Americans with major depression. Unfortunately, for addiction to illicit drugs or alcohol, we only treat 18% of Americans with addiction. And that's really, in my mind, structural stigma in medicine. Structural stigma leads to one in five patients with addiction getting treatment as compared to four out of five for other illnesses. And What I found in researching this topic is that stigma casts a really wide net. There's stigma about epilepsy, stigma about urinary incontinence, stigma about neglected tropical diseases, stigma about heragenitis supportiva, it's all over. And in reviewing all of these different studies and looking at the various conditions that are stigmatized, I truly believe that addiction is the most stigmatized condition. And that's where we can be patient advocates to really help them navigate this system with so much stigma that is biased against them. So we're going to pivot here. I think we all understand what stigma is and what it does. Now we've got to ask, what do we do about stigma? And the first paper we're going to look at is from BMC Medicine in 2019. And the title is Stigma in Health Facilities, Why It Matters and How We Can Change It. And we really have to start by identifying stigma in healthcare, because it looks a little bit different than in the general world we live in. And I'm gonna quote the authors here, quote, in health facilities, the manifestations of stigma are widely documented, ranging from outright denial of care, to provision of substandard care, to physical and verbal abuse, to more subtle forms, such as making certain people wait longer or passing their care off to junior colleagues, end quote. and I thought that was a really well done definition because it talks about some of the microaggressions, like making patients wait longer. The other thing we have to realize about stigma in healthcare is that when we have stigma about certain conditions, we're hurting ourselves. Stigma impacts the well-being of the health workforce because healthcare workers may also be living with stigmatized conditions, and. One estimate as to the prevalence of a substance use disorder in the United States is that one in seven people in the United States is expected to develop a substance use disorder at some point in their lives. So if you work at a hospital that employs thousands of people, up to several hundred people in your hospital organization have a substance use disorder or may develop a substance use disorder at some point in their lives. So in this article, they really identified three strategies for how to address stigma. Number one, educate about stigma. Number two, work with or have contact with the stigmatized group. And third, looking at more structural or policy changes within the institution. And as far as education, This is a prime example of education. You're listening to a piece right now to understand better about stigma, and at my hospital, we used Grand Rounds to facilitate this. In regards to having contact with a stigmatized group, it's really spending time with your patients who have stigmatizing conditions to understand their perspective and to see how they are treated. Now, when it comes to bigger changes, like structural or policy changes, I want to start by talking about language, and this brings us to our next article, which is from Substance Abuse Treatment Prevention and Policy in 2020, and the title of the article is called Stigma, How It Affects the Substance Use Disorder Patient. And the article really says it beautifully, and I'm going to quote, quote, our language helps us understand and interpret the world around us. They convey meaning, whether the effect is good or bad we can use our words to help decrease stigma," end quote. And really best practice is going to be using person-first language and avoiding terms with a judgment. I'll give some examples. Person-first language is simple. Patients are first, before their diagnosis, people. The proper term for what we used to call an alcoholic is a person with an alcohol use disorder. A schizophrenic should be a patient with schizophrenia. Even a diabetic should be a patient with diabetes. And again, we also want to avoid terms with a judgment. Dirty urine is inherently judgmental. It should be an abnormal urine tox screen. Junkie, ugh, oh, that term. Ooh, that term hurts to even say it. Should be a person with injection drug use or a person with a substance use disorder. And. Avoid terms that are very judgmental in a flippant way, like that guy is crazy, that person has severe psychosis, or that person has severe anxiety. And a colleague of mine sent me a quote I love on this topic, which is a a quote that says, if you want to care for something, you call it a flower. If you want to kill something, call it a weed. And I think that's so profound. So... Use person first language and avoid terms with judgment. Do it in front of the patient. You can even be explicit about it. If they call themselves an alcoholic, correct them. Sir, we believe you're a person first. If it's okay with you, I'm going to call you a person with an alcohol use disorder. Use person first language in front of your staff. Set the precedent, be the example. And gently correct your colleagues when they use stigmatizing language. It's okay to tell a colleague, hey, I really think that that term can be be better. Maybe we should use a person with an alcohol use disorder here when talking about this patient. And coming back to the second recommendation that the paper made to reduce stigma by having contact with a stigmatized group, you can make person first language even more powerful if you're willing to share a little bit about yourself. If you're willing, correct your colleagues by sharing a personal reason why you care about the language. In other words, give them contact with the stigmatized group through you. If you've had a stigmatized condition, it may be very personal, it may be hard to do. But if you're willing, that really makes a difference. You, as a trusted colleague, telling your colleague, can you not say that I had that condition and it hurts me, that does several things. It, number one, gives them that contact with the stigmatized condition or group, but it also makes the reason to use person-first language all the more powerful. If it's not even about you, if it's about a friend or a family member, that counts too. You could say, for example, please don't use the term junkie. My friend died of an overdose from IV drug use, and it's so hard to hear that term. Your colleague is going to say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know you had a friend. I'm so sorry. Putting a little skin in the game makes this person-first language take hold even faster. So if you're able to share something personal about yourself, you can really work to decrease stigma faster and more effectively in your institution. We're going to pivot here, and we're going to move on to our next reference. And this one isn't a scientific paper, but it's actually the topic of a recent book I read by Oprah. And uh, what I referenced in my Grand Rounds talk was an article from the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was entitled, quote, What Happened Versus What's Wrong?, recognizing how trauma impacts us all. And this was actually a book that I just finished, as I mentioned, uh, by Oprah, which was absolutely fantastic. And the title of that book was What Happened to You? And we're going to talk about some reframing here, which I think you'll find to be helpful. And if you do find this to be interesting, Oprah's book was fantastic. So adverse childhood events adversely affect how we learn, the development of our emotions and our behaviors. And if you don't know what an adverse childhood event is, it's basically something bad that happens in childhood that is a huge stressor to the person. Adverse childhood events are often abbreviated as A-C-E and pronounced ace. So adverse childhood events are often referred to as aces. And I'll give you some examples. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, a young person's mother was treated violently, household substance abuse, household mental illness, or an incarcerated household family member. Divorce even would apply here as well. So these are all adverse childhood events. And as each person has an increased exposure to adverse childhood events, the risk of mental illness, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, substance use, and many other conditions increases. And there's actually a correlation that the greater number of ACEs you have as a child, the more likely you are to have more conditions as an adult. And I had an aha moment recently with one of my patients that helped me to understand ACEs and going from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So I had a patient sent to the emergency department who was using methadone, who was gonna be entering into a residential drug treatment program. And I got a message from the residential drug treatment program saying this patient needs to be admitted. She's on methadone, she uses methamphetamine, and she also uses alcohol. So I walked into the room, hello, I'm Dr. Grover, nice to meet you. how are you doing? I heard this from the treatment program. I heard that you use methadone. We'll be happy to take care of you. Alcohol and then methamphetamine. And the patient stopped me and said, Doctor, no, I cannot use alcohol. When I was a child, my stepdad would beat us after he was drinking and urinate on us. And I remember the smell of alcohol and I will never be able to touch it. And I was just floored. And I thought, no wonder you have problems with substance use, think of what happened to you. What's wrong with you? No. What happened to you? What's your story that led to substance use? And in your mind, if you're ever really struggling with a patient, stepping back and saying, what's wrong with this person? Take a deep breath and say, what happened to this person? A few tips that I ended my Grand Rounds talk with to just help frame how to understand when you might have some bias from stigma when you're seeing a patient. Before you walk into a challenging patient's room, tell yourself, this patient is suffering and I'm grateful I don't have to suffer like that. Share it with those around you. Sometimes just a little minute to take a deep breath and reframe yourself before you go into a room can make a huge difference. My last final personal tip about stigma is if you reassure patients that they're not going to be judged, and you reassure patients that you are just trying to help them, and you are honest when you tell patients that, you will be amazed just how much patients open up to you. All right, that was quite a bit of material. I'm sure I made multiple misspeaks and ums and uhs, but this was off the cuff, and I care a lot about this topic, and I hope you found it helpful. So we're gonna review our three take-home points. Number one, stigma in healthcare is a set of negative and often unfair beliefs about patients with a particular condition. Number two, stigma hurts patients in multiple ways, including changing their behavior, avoiding healthcare, receiving poorer healthcare, and increasing their risk of dying. And number three, reducing stigma is easier than you think and is a team effort. And I'm just off the cuff here, going to add one more and say words matter, use person first language. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.